So we go backwards a little bit. We've, we've been in, we did a Christmas uh, sermon or two around Christmas time, and now we're, we're back into it again. So as we begin looking at this, um, I want to I wanna take a second and kind of walk through this passage and hopefully help you to see it maybe in a slightly different light, not just in the Christmas light, but also as the portrait that Matthew is painting for us. So what it reminds me of where we're at is kind of at that place in a story where the, the, the author decides to kind of let you in on some backstory. You know, when you're watching a movie or when you're reading a book and there's that kind of you know, diversion from the main story to let you know something. It could be a flashback. It could be uh, a flash to something else that's happening at the same exact time. But it's that, that mo- moment where the author goes, I want to explain to you what's happening here. Because this is so important that you really need to get it. See, the, I run into this in the books that I read. I read a lot of nerdy books, and I'm one of those people who reads the footnotes. Because I'll be reading along, and there'll be something, and I'll go, oh, that was cool. Oh, and there's this little number, and I get to see what the author was thinking or where he got that thought from. I know most of us are not like that. I'm an odd bird in that sense. I hate end notes. I like footnotes. I don't want to flip to the back of the book. I want to know right there. But authors do this. They, they take moments where they say, let's zoom in a little bit and figure out what's actually happening here. It reminds me of a, a program that came out a few years ago. I remember when it was um, brand new. It was Google Earth. Anybody seen this? It was a, it was a thing where you could, you could click on your computer and it, you could see the whole Earth from space, right? All these satellite photos put together. And you take your mouse and you just do the little roller on your mouse and it zooms in. And you can zoom in on things like the pyramids or the, the Great Wall of China or, like I did, my house. And I zoomed in to see what it looked like. And as you zoom in, you look at it from a, a thousand feet up and you see the, the Clackamas River and the Willamette River and then you see your street and you zoom in closer and closer and you know what you see when you get really close? You see my beautiful bride and my three kids in the front yard playing and me waving at the Google guy. Our faces are blurred out, so that's good because I don't know what faces we were making at that moment. But you zoom in and you get some more detail. You zoom back too far, and it's just a little, you know, gray daub, and that's our house. But when we zoom in, that's where our life happened, right? And that's what Matthew is doing here. Matthew wants us to not miss this. See, he's painting this portrait of Jesus, and he says, but wait, I want you to see this all the way down to the, the brush stroke. I want to take it really close so you can understand what I just said. See, Matthew doesn't want us to miss a single thing. And this passage today, verses 18 through 25, is a deep dive into verse 16 of Matthew chapter 1. And so we're going we're gonna to try to understand what Matthew is teaching because there's two really significant things that he brings out. So here's our big picture. It's not a great uh, sentence. So those of you that are English buffs, I'm sorry. Uh, you hired me to, to tell you about Jesus, not to be good at English. But this is what it is. Jesus is God in person by the Holy Spirit and the King by Joseph's obedience. Jesus is God in person by the Holy Spirit and he is the King by the obedience of Joseph, Joseph's obedience. See, this section we we refer to as the virgin birth. Actually, it's really not about the birth of Jesus. 
that he's spending all of his time. Instead, he's spending his time on the conception of Jesus. It's not the fact that a virgin had a baby. It's that a virgin had a conceived baby inside of her. Where did that genetic material come from? Where did that individual come from? Who is his father? What is interesting is that Matthew doesn't actually deal much with the birth of Jesus. It's mentioned here at the end that Jesus was born, and that's it. There's no shepherds. There's no angels. There's none of that. Chapter 2 starts off with the wise men showing up. So it fast forwards even farther along. But what this is, is Matthew is trying to give us a theological explanation for why it is Jesus is the king and why he is the son of God. So let's review. We're going to go back up to Matthew 1.1. It starts off with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We spent some time unpacking that last time. But the opening words here are the book of of the genesis of Jesus. That's the literal translation, the book of the origin of Jesus. So this is about how Jesus came to be. Verse 16, the one I've been referencing, it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Now, if you remember from two weeks ago, seems like a lot longer than two weeks ago, but two weeks ago, When we looked at this genealogy, it's broken up into three chunks. And each chunk, according to Matthew, is 14 generations, as in 14 fathers, starting with Abraham, going all the way down to where Jesus was born. And if we remember, there's no father listed for Jesus. There's only 13 listed in that verses 12 through 16. We see Joseph here, but he's not listed as the father of Jesus. He's listed as the husband of Mary. And so this has left a question hanging. Where did the 13 chromosomes that became the male part of Jesus come from? Mary didn't provide them. Where did they come from? So Matthew wants to zoom in here and really get to the heart of what's happening here. He doesn't want us to miss this. Because if he had just skipped ahead to the wise men coming which is pretty awesome, then you miss this whole who's Jesus' father and it just becomes a mystery and oh well, nobody knows. But Matthew knows and he wants us to make sure we don't miss it. See, not only that, but there's a lot about Joseph here as well. This is where Joseph is mentioned more than anywhere else in the Bible is right here in Matthew's gospel. And this section is kind of his, his highlight, his top point. No father is listed. So how is it, if Joseph's not his father, how is he a king? So the two questions we're going to address today. Who is Jesus' father? And if Joseph is not his father, then how is he in line to be king? Because Joseph was a descendant of David. How is it that Jesus is considered a descendant of David if Joseph's not his dad? So those are the two things that Matthew wants us to not miss Because it not only tells us who Jesus is, but it lets us know why this is good news and why this matters. So here we go, verse 18. I summarize it this way. This is the supernatural conception of Jesus the Christ. The supernatural conception of Jesus the Christ. And what I've done is just, we're just going to stair step right through these verses because they they, they stand alone and they speak what we're going to be talking about. So verse 18 Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
So that very first sentence, this now is the birth or Genesis, same word from chapter 1, verse 1, of Jesus took place in this way. So Matthew's saying, this is what we're talking about. This is our summary statement. We're going to talk about how Jesus came to be. The word Genesis here works great, but it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't exist prior to this verse. Jesus, again, is that, that second person of the Trinity has existed for all of eternity. This is the enfleshing, or the, 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 the word we use is incarnation. In being the word in. And carne, you know what carne asada is. It's meat. It's in the flesh. So it's in the flesh. This is when Jesus becomes flesh. So we see some words here. You guys are familiar with these because you know the Christmas story. Betrothal. This does not mean that Joseph and Mary were just engaged. In ancient times, marriage had a three-step process. The first step where the parents got together and chose your future spouse, okay? And right now, some of the kids are going, I don't know if I trust mom and dad with that. They'd get together and they'd make an agreement. So that was stage one. Stage two was a betrothal. And this was officially saying at this date in the future, we're going to be married. And according to the law, they were married. They were calling each other husband and wife. They didn't live together. They didn't consummate. They didn't do any of that, but they were officially married. So that if one of them died, they would be called a widow or a widower. If one of them committed adultery, they would have to have a divorce. And so this is the point where Joseph and Mary find themselves. And then finally, the final step is that formal ceremony, which they would do a seven-day uh, wedding feast, so puts the, the weddings that many of you have been in to shame, sorry. Seven days of party, and then the, 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 it was officially a married couple. So this is where Joseph and Mary find themselves. And then she's found to be with child. Mary was about four months pregnant. We can kind of put this together by what Luke tells us about when she went to, to visit the mother of John the Baptist, Elizabeth. And then we see this word from, with child from, this word from is one of those kind of words that gets a little hidden in our English translations. It's the Greek word ek, ek, okay? It means by or from. And we've seen this word several times in Matthew already. As a matter of fact, we've seen it all four times that the women are mentioned in the first section. Tamar, Rahab, and so on, Bathsheba. So this word is actually by. And we're going to come back to this and why that's important, that it's by the Holy Spirit and not from the Holy Spirit when we get down to verse 20. So bear with me on that. We'll get to it. Holy Spirit. One of the things that a lot of people think when they hear Holy Spirit is that this is a New Testament thing. But that's just not true. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity existing for all of time. In the Old Testament, they didn't call him the Holy Spirit because they didn't really have him as revealed as he was after Christ came and rose again. He was called the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Lord. As a matter of fact, in Genesis, it says the Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters, hovering over the deep. So the Holy Spirit is a part of creation and has been there from the very beginning. We see this with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, people misread this, and they read this as God and Mary had relations and then Mary got pregnant. There's two groups today that misread this and kind of have different responses. The two groups would be the Latter-day Saints, known as the Mormons, and then the Muslims. The Latter-day Saints view this, and, and through the, the books written by Joseph Smith, they believe that gods of planets 
father all the kids with their spirit wives. So they've taken it literally that God had sexual relations with Mary, and then that's what all gods do for all of time. So ladies get to be pregnant for all of eternity. Doesn't sound like fun. The other side is the Muslims. The Muslims took it and say, no, no, there's no way that God would ever enter into any kind of relationship like that with a woman, a sinful fallen woman. So both sides take it and kind of go to extremes. But that's not what is being said here. Because look at what, what Joseph is told. Joseph is told, Mary hasn't cheated on you. Mary hasn't had any sort of relations. Instead, she's had the Holy Spirit create life inside of her. And so there is no relations there, and they're missing the point. One cool thing that an author pointed out was this idea of, of life coming from non-life, this virgin conception. He said, this is a lot like what each of us experience when we become believers in Jesus. Because Mary didn't do anything, she just had it done to her, and then now she's pregnant. Same thing goes for us. The Spirit works on us before we're ever aware that the Spirit's working on us and He's drawing us to Him. And so literally every single person who's a follower of Christ has experienced a virgin birth in their lives via the Holy Spirit. And you can testify to that. You know that the Holy Spirit's grabbed a hold of you, sometimes kicking and screaming, and pulls you to Christ. So how amazing is it that this new life the Holy Spirit does with Christ is the same thing we get to experience in part when he redeems us. So Matthew describes this like no big deal. This is not, there's no flourishing here. There's no extra words. Instead, he just goes, Mary, yeah, by the Holy Spirit, move on. Doesn't stop. Like, what does that mean? Give us more information. But he doesn't do that. His father being God via the Holy Spirit and his mother being Mary means he's fully divine and fully human, which means his sacrifice on our behalf is perfect and is applicable to us. Perfect in that he's God and applicable to us in that he's human. So those two come together. What an incredible story. All right, now verse 19. We see the scandal and Joseph's dilemma. Joseph is stuck. Joseph has a problem. He's got a little dilemma he has to deal with. Verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put, to shame, put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So remember, betrothal means husband and wife. So this requires a divorce. They can't just call it off. The fact that he's a just man is a, is a kind of a colloquialism that means he follows the rules. He follows the law. But look at this. He didn't want her to be put to shame. See, whenever someone's unfaithful, according to the Mosaic law, that person is to be stoned, is to be put to death. We see this later when Jesus, uh, at a woman who's caught in adultery, and they're getting ready to stone her. But Joseph doesn't, doesn't want this. He doesn't want her to be stoned. He doesn't want her to be put to death. He says, I'm going to divorce her quietly. He didn't want her to be dishonored, and he didn't want her to die. Now, I just got to stop and say, wow. What an incredible response. Because from Joseph's perspective, we have no conversation between him and Mary. He's going, oh wait, she's pregnant and I didn't do it. This is terrible. This, this looks bad on me. She went against me. And instead of responding with, yeah, go stone her, that woman. Instead, he goes, no, don't do that. I'm gonna care for her. I'm gonna comfort her. I'm gonna show compassion. So he's the wronged one, and yet he shows compassion. Does that sound like anybody else maybe 
the wronged one showing compassion instead of taking the vengeance that he was owed? Maybe that Jesus is not that different than his father, his adopted father, Joseph. So Joseph decides he's going to not save face. He's not going to worry about any of this stoning her and the public disgrace that she would have. Instead, he's going to divorce her quietly and just kind of move on. But then we get God's explanation in verse 20. But as he considered these things, that means he was pondering them over time. So he was thinking through these. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This word behold, you'll see this throughout the, the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. As a matter of fact, both books have 43 versions of this word. It's a word that's like all caps, pay attention, bolded, you know, arrows pointing to it. This is a pay attention, something big's about to happen. That's what that word means in the Greek. And so this paying attention is an angel coming to visit Joseph. We believe this angel was Gabriel. An angel simply meaning a messenger of God. It's the Greek word angelos, and it sounds like angel because all they did was took the letters and turned them into English and gave us that word. But what this word means is it means a messenger, and in this instance, a supernatural messenger, a messenger coming to tell Joseph in a dream, you can marry her, it's okay. Dreams were an important way that God communicated, and we'll see this in chapter two as well. He sees that, that angel says, Joseph, son of David, so there's a connection here. Joseph is reminded right at the start that his children, whoever he has in his family, will be heirs to the throne of David. It's reminded here by this angel. He says, do not fear. This lets us know that Joseph had already made up his mind. He was done. He was going to say, I I'm not marrying this woman. And the angel says, no, you're going to marry her. He commands him, you will marry her, which means Joseph is going to need to adopt Jesus. Jesus will become his heir, his adopted son. Now, I want to stop for a second, verse 20. I told you guys we were going to deal with ek, and I want to also deal with this word conceived. The word conceived right here is an important word. As a matter of fact, already in the book of Matthew, starting in verse 2, the word conceived has been used 40 times. Now, I encourage you, if you want to look back in there, you won't see it because our, our translations kind of kind of cover it a little bit. It's the word that we see, father or fathered. So this is the same word here. And what I'm going to say is, I believe Matthew is trying to connect something here. It's similar to what we talked about last week, about who Jesus' father is. Who's the 14th father? Because ultimately, we see that Matthew is taking this little 18 to 25, and it's not detached from 1 through 17. He's just, again, zooming in. And we see it in verse 18 with the word Genesis right at the beginning, saying, hey, I'm explaining this chapter 1, verse 1 thing. But on top of that, he says, not only did these guys get fathered, you know, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered, and so-and-so fathered, and so-and-so fathered. But then you get down here into verse 20, and it says, fathered by the Holy Spirit. So here is that 14th father. The Holy Spirit fathered Jesus. The Holy Spirit caused Jesus to be conceived. This is that zooming in, and he doesn't want us to miss this. 
As a matter of fact, it's so important. He's already mentioned it twice. He mentioned it at the beginning in 18, and now he mentions it here in 20. And then Matthew devotes the next few verses to showing why this needs to happen. See, the Holy Spirit has always been about creation and recreation. One author said, the Holy Spirit genesis Jesus. He brought about Jesus, the flesh, Jesus in the man, in the human form. See, the Holy Spirit has two jobs. It's to bring Christ down and, and show us to him as a human, but also to elevate Christ and to show him to us as God. And he still does that to this day, does he not? The Holy Spirit comes in and says, listen, Jesus understands what you're going through. And if that's hard for you to get, I, I, don't, I can't get through this, Jesus. I need help. You cry out to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit shows you Jesus the man, the perfect man. Or maybe you're struggling with, ah, how can Jesus be God? What does this mean? The Holy Spirit helps us understand that. And we see this. We see this throughout Paul. We see it in James. We see it throughout the rest of the New Testament. Is the Holy Spirit coming in and helping us understand. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes along. The Spirit lifts up. Because the Spirit's not all about self. The Spirit's all about pointing to Jesus. And we can say, we cannot make too much of Jesus. Amen. We cannot make too much of Jesus. So God's explanation is the Holy Spirit's going to make Jesus. It's not a man. It's not some guy that she's cheating on. It's the Holy Spirit doing this. And then in verse 21, we see Jesus' mission explained. So the angel doesn't just go, go marry her. You're fine. Instead, the angel says, here's why this matters. Here's why it's important. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, naming people in this time was not just, hey, this name sounds good with our last name. Or, hey, this name's kind of fun. Or, hey, it's got a good nickname. That's what, I, that's what we chose. These names were hopes for parents. They would choose names and say, this is what I want my kid to be like. And so their names would have certain meanings. Joseph is told, you are to name Jesus Jesus, Yeshua, meaning God saves. Or even better, the literal translation is God, comma, save. And isn't that the truth? He is God and he has come to save both together. His name literally means God saves. How awesome is that? It tells us what Jesus is and also what Jesus does. Notice it says he will save his people. And if you remember that first section of 14, up at the beginning of Matthew 1, you remember it was full of Gentiles. It was full of people that didn't belong there. So who are the, his people? Joseph probably thought he meant the Jews. But Matthew knows that it means all of us. All of us are his people. Save these people from their sins. Angels pointing to the different kind of saving than a lot of the people wanted. They wanted to be saved from their situation. But the angel is pointing to multiple Old Testament prophecies that says, I'm going to save you from your sins. See, the real source of the problem, it is sin. We have seen the enemy, and it is us. It's inside of us. It's our sin. They thought, oh, we got to get rid of Rome, and everything will be great. Jesus goes, no, no. Don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear those who will destroy both body and soul in hell. Because sin is what matters. 
In essence, Jesus is saying, well, the angel is saying that Jesus is going to destroy not this puny little gecko lizard of the Romans, but instead the great red dragon of our sin, this humongous dragon that is destroying all of us. That's who Jesus came. His aim was much bigger. As usual, Charles Spurgeon nails it, so I'm going to read you a quote. He says, he, being Jesus, saves his people from their sins. The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not by riches, but my need. He comes to visit his people, not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities. Not to reward their virtues, but to forgive them of their sins. That's why Jesus came. It's to, to get rid of the biggest problem we have, which is sin. So the angel doesn't want, and Matthew, or the angel, we don't know who's actually saying this. We think it's just Matthew, but it could have also been the angel, is saying, this isn't just my idea. This is God's idea, and he made it clear in Scripture. So we see Scripture fulfills, is fulfilled by Jesus' conception. Verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a prophecy given to Isaiah when the, the king Ahaz was a dark time, national threat. And the promise is David's, king, David's throne is going to last forever. And we see that there's this concept of the virgin conception, this virgin birth, again, being prophesied. Emmanuel, literally, God with us, or even better, the with us God. The with us God, the God who is here in the muck, the God who comes into our sin and redeems us out of it. Now, there's no record of Jesus ever being called this. You know, they have, there's no nickname. His family doesn't use this at all. So why is it here? Well, the best answer I found was that this was a title that signified his messianic identity. It signified who he was. We do see him called it elsewhere, but not by his family or even by his disciples. And again, Jesus tells us what God does. Emmanuel tells us who God, who Jesus is. And we get the two together. What a picture. Jesus is the God with us, the deity right here with us. No greater blessing can be conceived than for God to dwell with his people. This with us is here. But not only that, he promises he will be with us forever, Matthew 28. And then eventually we get the eternal feast with him forever and ever. God with us and us with God. Again, Spurgeon. Emmanuel, God with us in our nature, in our sorrow, in our life work, in our punishment, in our grave, and now with us. Or rather, we with him in resurrection, ascension, triumph, and the second coming splendor. Jesus' coming to us provides all of that in response. He did all the work, all the heavy lifting. We get all the reward. And then finally, I told you we were going to deal with why Jesus' father was the Holy Spirit and what that means. And now we're going to deal with Jesus' adopted father because this is how he is the king. Joseph's faith leads to his obedience and blessing. Verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife and knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. 
Joseph's obedience and submission is right up there on par with Mary's from Luke chapter 1. He is an incredible example for us. And, and notice how many words Joseph speaks in this section. It's zero. Joseph never utters a word. Instead, it's just his actions that do it. His actions do the speaking. Righteousness is to simply obey the word of God. It's to do. Matthew talks a lot about doing and doing and what that means as we get farther into the book. And Joseph just does. His words speak through his actions. So then we see this naming of Jesus. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important for two reasons. The first reason is he has adopted him as his son. That's what happens when he marries Mary. So Mary is his wife, so Jesus is now a part of the deal. Now, it would be no big deal if he kind of was like, all right, you're my adopted kid, and I'm just going to kind of push you off to the side. But instead, he steps in and says, I am naming him, which says, he is mine. So right at this moment, Jesus becomes a part of the line of the king of David. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy that David's throne will go on forever and ever. Joseph, who never speaks, quietly gives Jesus his kingly inheritance. What a picture. Now, when we think about this of Joseph adopting Jesus, you know, he gets the privilege and the blessing of being the adopted father of the Son of God, his own Savior. He adopts Jesus, and by adopting Jesus, he places Jesus in line to be his Savior. What a cool picture. But think about the sacrifice that Joseph had to make here. Think about Joseph's dreams and his plans. Think about the fact that he would like to have a son that looked like him, a son that acted like him. People saying, oh, he's just like you, Joseph, when he does that. Think about the dreams that he had, that he had to lay down at the altar and say, not my will, but yours be done. And also, there was always going to be a stigma, wasn't there? Because it'll always be, oh, you know, she was pregnant on their wedding day. I wonder. And we see this in Jesus' life later in Matthew, Matthew 13, 54 and 55. We see uh, these guys talking to Jesus. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is this not his mother called Mary? John MacArthur says this is actually a, a, a kind of a rip on Joseph. They don't even mention his name, and they're like, well, we think he might be the, be the, the carpenter's son. It's, it's belittling Joseph. And you know Joseph had to hear this. Nazareth is not a big city, and the scandal went with him people in Nazareth knew. So Joseph takes all of this and lays it down and says, Lord, your will be done. His marriage starts off in a crisis, and the first thing he sacrifices are his dreams. What an incredible man of obedience and faith. So you've seen that Jesus is the Son of God. He's brought about by the Holy Spirit. You've seen that through the incredible actions of obedience by Joseph, he is the king. So now what do we do in response to that? Well, in response to that, the question is, will you become a subject of the king? Matthew's message throughout the rest of the book of Matthew, pretty much starting in chapter 3 and on, is here's how you live under the king. Here's how you live in the kingdom. But the first thing you have to do is you have to 
be a subject of the king. At Bethlehem, God became man to enable man to become sons of God. So won't you be a subject of the king? Be like Joseph when he submitted to God, putting his dreams and his good name aside for the better name, for the salvific name. See, just like Joseph and how he was adopting Jesus into his family is that Jesus is adopting us into his family. We can be a part of God's family. This is what the good news of the gospel is, is that this king wants to adopt us. So not only are we subjects, it's better than that. When we're adopted into his family, we become royalty. If you are in Christ, you are a prince or a princess of the king. You get to feast at the banquet feast of the lamb. You become royalty. So I'll leave you with this. If God loves us so much as to become a man, then the blessings that he intends to bestow on us must be incalculable. The gifts he wants to give us for being found in him must be beyond expression. Won't you choose him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, King Jesus, we praise you for this incredible story that Matthew included in his gospel, that you inspired him through the Holy Spirit to include. And Lord, we just so want to be a part of your family. So Lord, I know that you're working on hearts and minds here, and you want us to be fully yours. Maybe, Lord, we are, we are flirting with another family, Lord. Maybe we're, we're trying out what the world has to offer along with what you have to offer. And Lord, I pray that you would just take us and stop that divided loyalty, that we would be fully devoted to you. Lord, help us to do that. Lord, for those of us who have never been devoted to you, Lord, work on our hearts right now. Change our hearts. Take out the heart of stone and put in a new heart devoted to you. Lord, we just love that you came in our place and took all that we deserved so that we could be with you. Thank you for this word from Matthew that we can study and know I pray, Lord, that we would be able to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.